0: And we decided we would start with, like, not like, "Hi, we just met you. Tell us about your feelings." But we'll start with some <laughs> more like process questions, and then awesome. we'll move
1: on to. some Then other we'll stuff. get
2: into feelings. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> exactly, because we have feelings.
0: Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a consultant living in Ukraine and London, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects.
1: And I'm Megan, a librarian, student, and freelance book indexer, querying my first novel, drafting a second, and researching a third.
0: In today's episode, we're very excited to share with you our interview from earlier in the summer with Mary Laura Philpot. Mary-Laura is the author of a great book, which is called I Miss You When I Blink, and we talk about it already on several episodes in our podcast, and I think it might be one of our most mentioned books. It's her debut memoir in essays. Her writing also appears in publications including the New York Times, the Paris Review, the Washington Post, Oh! The Oprah Magazine, and others. Mary-Laura really examines, uh, and it's what we really love about it, the overlap of the absurd and the profound in life. This book is not just loved by us, it was also the number one spot on the Indie Next list, named by booksellers nationwide. It's featured in various magazines and websites, and you can get a short snippet of it on the New York Times, or read a review in things like the Washington Post, or hear a conversation with her on NPR. Additionally, Mary Laura is the author and illustrator of the book Penguins with People Problems. She is the book enthusiast at large for Parnassus Books where she was also the founding editor of the digital magazine Musing. And she's also an Emmy award-winning co-host of A Word on Words, which is a literary interview show on Nashville Public Television. She enjoys traveling around the country to speak with people about creativity, work, the ups and downs of perfectionism, which we talk about quite a lot in our interview with her, reinvention, reading, writing, and she lives in Nashville, Tennessee with her family. We hope you enjoy the interview as much as we did.
1: Um, Yeah. So one of the things that really interested us, um, especially in the context of our podcast, is the fact that you do a lot of things um, and they are both different and the same at the same time. Like they're all kind of writing related, book related, (laughs) but they aren't all just sitting down writing things. And so I was just really curious how you... Um, oh, I guess for our listeners who don't know, you have your, um, word on words, your television interview program, um, and you do your stuff with Parnassus books, um, writing Mm -hmm. the newsletter thing. I can't remember what it's called, Mm -hmm. but I do read it, um, (laughs) (laughs) and book reviews and you, you know, you write your own things, um, and you actually have a background in communications and doing writing for other people, kind of on a corporate-ish level, um or nonprofit profit level, how do you, I mean, not to mention, like, you know, all of the life things that people do, especially <laughs> women, um, Yeah. what does that look like for you? Like, how do you sit down and do, I guess, get whatever done that needs yeah. to be done at what times? Do you do it regular? Is it a regular thing? Do you just kind of go as you need to?
2: That is a good question, and it is a question I keep asking myself. <laughs>
1: how...
2: <laughs> how am I going to do all these things? It changes. I mean, sometimes it changes on a day-to-day basis, but I think it also changes for me, at least in seasons. So I've had seasons of my life where most of my daytime working hours are spent on day jobs. So um, for example, there was for about five years, I ran Musing, which is the digital magazine for Parnassus Books. And that was like that was my day job that I would get up and work on whatever we were covering and get that done. And then, you know, at the end of whatever hours I spent on that, I would feel like I had had a successful work day. Check that box. Um, The TV show, which is, um, is on public television and we have 15 episodes a year of which I shoot seven and my co-host shoots seven or eight that doesn't add up to 15 (laughs) does it one of us gets seven one of us gets eight um so that's more that kind of happens intermittently that's not something that's in my life every single day as part of my work life um but then I've had seasons of life where um, especially over the past couple of years where I've been working on larger creative projects of my own so instead of just writing you know Trying to pub- I used to have a goal to publish four or five essays a year in major outlets and I would feel like if I could like quarterly get a, a good essay out there in front of a lot of eyes I would I feel good about that um, when you're working on a book of essays you, you have to speed that up a little bit so it's been tough the past couple of years to balance everything because it's just it really doesn't all fit within a day and for me like a lot of people when I say a day I really mean the school day because in the afternoon, my house gets a lot noisier than it was at 10 a.m. So it changes. It changes a lot. What kind of the routine that has worked for me for the past couple of years is get up, get everybody out the door, sit down, do some portion of day job work. Because if I can do that, I feel like I've accomplished something. Then switch over to the creative work. Because sometimes at the end of that portion of the day, I feel like I've accomplished something. And sometimes I don't. Sometimes I delete all the words that I wrote. Um, And then kind of move back into checking email. And you know, there's so much administrative stuff that just eats up the day. That was a long winded answer to your question. But the answer is there. I don't have a perfect formula, like a set way that I can go. It's 20% this and it's 30% this during these hours. I wish I did. I wish I'd figured that out. I don't know how I don't know how it's going to look going forward.
1: How do you deal with that? Um, as I think Olivia and I both are, well, I know for sure, are perfectionists as well. And so there were so many things about your book that really spoke to us that we will talk about when we get into the feelings section um, of this interview, <laughs> because we have an agenda, because that's what you have to do. Of course. Um, actually, we don't have an agenda, but um, it's not actually written down, but we can write it down if we need to, so we can check it off. Um, but no, so the whole kind of overall theme of your book, book is reinvention in small steps, right? Like not blowing, as you say, not blowing up your life, not buying a Corvette, but just not packing everything up in a backpack and leaving, but take making small steps. And, and I think that's, that's what happens in a creative life and with a creative career. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But it's really hard.
2: (laughs) It is so hard. And if you're a perfectionist, you want to feel stable like I always what I'm mentally always reaching for is feeling stability and accomplishment like I've got a routine and I'm doing it and that is (laughs) it just does not jive with a creative life or especially a creative life that is mashed in along with a family life or professional life when you've piled all these things upon one another as so many people do um so I do I have a, a low level constant simmering anxiety slash frustration. Because I never get to the end of the day and feel like, wow, I nailed it, got it all done. It just never ends. But it's, I've had that low level anxiety and frustration for so long. I think now I'm just like, I guess that's how life goes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a good, you know, at some point, you do just have to accept that maybe this is the life that I'm living and not. Yeah, it doesn't need to be fixed.
2: Right. And it helps to talk with You know, one of the reasons I love your podcast is it helps to talk with other people who are living creative lives and understand that, oh, this doesn't mean I'm doing something wrong. We all feel that low level anxiety and frustration at not being able to get it all done every day. And that's that's true whether you're a you know, just starting out newspaper reporter, writer, or you're Celeste Ng and you're like one of the most successful novelists in the world. Everyone I know on Every different professional level of creativity feels that, you know, at at least at some point feels that frustration of, ah, I got to, I want to, I want to do so much more than I can get in a day.
0: Yeah. Till you started talking about those 20, 30% formulas, I hadn't even really realized that that was an option. So now I'm going to have to figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like
0: a pie chart. Get it all figured out. (laughs) Uh, But one thing I also really liked in what you said Uh, which also appeals to me but is a little bit unconventional if you follow lots of creative things was that you start with your day job work um, and you get that out of the way and then you move on to creative work and number one I mean did you experiment with the other way around and also like how do you turn off the day job like because for me I know that I can get so much achievement if I just do my job uh, and it's so much harder if you do your creative work and so it always feels like it's more urgent to do the other stuff and I can push the creative work forever.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, most people would probably tell you, in fact, I would probably give the advice to most people that if you don't prioritize your creative work, it will get pushed to the side. And so probably for most people, the better way to do it is to sit down and say the first hour of my day is for my novel or whatever. And then I will move on to my, to my day job. I am, in my personal way of doing things i'm playing to my neuroses one of one of my neuroses is i i don't even feel like i deserve to exist if i have not checked something off in a day so i'm i'm giving myself the gift of great you've done something and that puts me a little bit more at peace and then I can focus on the creative work without having this guilty, like, what if I spend two hours on this and I delete it at the end of the day and then I haven't done anything? And then who am I? Why am I here? Why do I deserve to have oxygen? So I'm playing, I'm playing to the neuroses on that a little bit.
0: Uh, I really like that though because I have recently realized that I feel a lot better about writing after I check my work email and I kind of know there's no fire to put out and then I can actually relax a bit more. And it's sort of like, if you listen to everybody else's advice and you don't feel your feelings, uh, then you can maybe really not be very uh, good to yourself. Like if you think, no, I'm doing it wrong or whatever.
2: Right, right. I'm doing it wrong. I'm not doing, I'm not doing the mantra that everybody else has. I mean, not everybody's mantra works for everybody else. It, I mean, I will say there is a danger, of course, that if you start your day with your day job, you will never make it back to your creative work because email never ends and phone calls start up and then somebody's texting. So it does require discipline and persistence to draw that line and set that boundary in your day and go, okay, now we're shutting down these windows and we're opening up these windows and I got to shift gears. And some, some days that happens more successfully than others.
1: Yeah. But I think, um, once you've, once you've done some of the work things, it's easier to put them away because you can say, yeah. or it is, it is for me, um, I've checked these things off. And then it's okay if it takes me three hours to write 500 words because I'm staring into space. Um, right, when,
2: right. Especially if you work in some sort of collaborative field where multiple people are working on the same project at once, you may need to get some balls rolling in the morning so that other people can do what they need to do. And in the time that they're doing what they need to do, you can turn and look to your own creative projects
0: yeah and i think like for me i use like usually 45 minute kind of breaks or whatever or not breaks but actual working periods and if you sit there and refresh your email like not that much happens in 45 minutes but you can easily stare your email for 45 minutes so uh like it's easier for me to turn it off it's not even that long of a period of time yeah okay so that's quite deep on tech <laughs> on your on your <laughs> uh schedule um we really wanted to also talk to you about how I mean, you mentioned a little bit about you know your goal for how many essays you were going to publish before, but we were interested in, um I guess a little bit more as well about the background about how you came up with the idea of publishing a book of essays. Did you set
2: out to do that and and that sort of thing? That's a good question. i I did set out to write a book's worth of essays. That was a challenge once i had once I had been writing essays for a number of years, I could see. I got a little confidence in the fact that even though every time I finish an essay, I am sure I will never have an idea ever again. Another idea will bubble up. So I I, over some time developed some confidence that if I kept going, the stack of essays would indeed grow. And so I challenged myself to write a stack big enough to become a book where I got really hung up. And I don't know if this happens to other people as, as much or not. I I know so many nonfiction writers who are really good at creating a proposal for a book and knowing exactly what they're going to write before they've written it and then selling that book on a proposal. I could not do that. So I, and I tried, like I tried at the, at the beginning of this process to go, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write 200 pages worth of essay material and it will be about. And that's where I got hung up. I couldn't summarize something I hadn't written yet. I don't know what I'm writing until I've written it. So I I did try to write a proposal. It was horrible. Um, It was really vague. You could tell I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where I was going to go with it. Um, And my sweet agent tried to take it out and show it to a couple people and very quickly it became clear that everyone could tell I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know what I was writing and so I we took it back and I said okay I just I got to go off by myself for like two years and just write 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 and then look at what I've written and figure out what it is and once I once I see it I'll be able to summarize it and I'll be able to see like what are the overarching themes is there a narrative arc and thank goodness it turned out that there was once I had written I think it's I think there are 32 total essays in the book, although there were 35 originally and three, three I yanked because they just didn't quite fit. But once I had written them and moved them around and gotten them to sort of snap into place in a cohesive way, a larger narrative did evolve. And so at that point I knew what I had written and I could go out and say, I have written a book about the following things. And it's actually, you know, it's not just a, collection of essays, it kind of turned into a memoir. So we've been calling it a memoir in essays, um, which I wouldn't have known to call it. And I wouldn't have known that it would have developed into that in the beginning. So it was, I really had to write through the process of figuring out what I was doing, which is so frustrating, but it's real (laughs) for me.
0: (laughs) No, I think that is interesting. And I also, I mean, I really liked the flow of the book. Um, no, we really loved it. I mean, we could talk probably for, like, an hour on each one of your essays, actually. Um, uh, but I can't – I've
1: now forgotten what I was going to actually ask you. So, Megan, maybe you have a question. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that – at the point with where Olivia and I are um, is we're writing things. We have day jobs, but we're not writing things that anybody wants at this point. Yeah. Um, so yeah. how did you – you had already you you had published a book before Penguins with People mm-hmm. Problems, which is mm-hmm. hilarious. Um, and but it's completely, it's the same totally but it's, different. It is totally different, but it's also kind of the same thing. I mean, it's as you say, like how to be a person, right? Um, but. So here you had, you said, I'm just going to take, did you, is two years just like kind of an off the cuff thing that you said just now? Or were you actually saying like, I am going to take, it's going to take me two years because I know how long it takes me to write things. Um, How do you deal with that sort of uncertainty?
2: It sucks. (laughs) I hate uncertainty so much. And what I really, what I wanted so hard was for someone to say to me, I guarantee you that at the end of this time. This will, this won't be for naught. It will be published. People will read it. People will like it. That is what I wanted so bad. And I understand that that is a fantasy, at least for me, that exists about as much as unicorns exist. And I cannot, I cannot get hung up on wanting that because that is just not real. Um, I didn't know at that point that it would be two years. That was a guess. I was like, it's going to take me at least a year, maybe a year and a half, possibly two, just because I'm a slow writer. I know how long it takes me to do things. Um, So there was definitely a process of letting go right then when I was like, okay, what I really wanted was certainty. I'm not going to get that. I can either sit here and have a tantrum about it forever, or I can just sit down, put my butt in the chair, keep writing until I have something, and that's probably going to be at least a year or two. That's the the hardest, hardest thing is writing when you don't, when you don't know that something's going to happen with what you're writing. And everybody, you know, all these creative memes and mantras and everything are like, write it anyway, write it because you care. Don't worry about whether it's going to get published. You just, you know, have faith. It's so hard to do that. (laughs) It's so hard. I mean, even now having published this book, which has had a really lovely reception by readers and is is kind of getting around through word of mouth. It's doing everything I could have dreamed that it could do. I am right back there in the same place. It's time to write another book. I don't know what it's going to turn into because I haven't finished writing it yet. And I, and there is no guarantee that it will have the same reception as the book before it. I hate uncertainty so much. I wish I I wish I had a great answer that was like, the trick is you have to tell <laughs> yourself this. But I don't. It just it sucks and it's real.
1: Yeah. I think that's as almost as helpful an answer though as a checklist. So, yeah. Just to I mean know. just know
2: you're in the just know you're in the same boat as everybody else. Yeah. I guess. Except my friends of whom I'm very jealous, who can do the wonderful writing the proposal and selling it thing. I am deeply envious of that. <laughs>
1: Yeah. But then sometimes, I mean, those proposals don't always, it's like writing an outline for a novel. Like you think this is what it's going to happen and then you write and it's something completely different. Um, and you don't, um, you had a really good quote in another interview, um, where you said, when you work on a long creative project, there are so many minutes moments when you can bail and so many good excuses to quit. And you said you just made yourself keep typing. Um, I mean, Obviously, the answer to how do you do that is, well, you sit down and you do it. Um, Mm -hmm. But could you talk a little bit more about that in general?
2: Yeah, I have found for me anyway, that it helps to manufacture some deadlines and manufacture some accountability, even if there even if that doesn't exist externally, like even when there was no editor waiting for this draft, because we had not sold the book. My agent was kind of waiting for it, but she was also like, "Okay, you just let me know when you have something. Um, I tried to create accountability with other people. There's actually there's an essay in the book called The Unaccountable Weight of Accountability. And it's about my writing group, um, which is it's five. Well, it was five. Now it's four nonfiction writers. We started as five nonfiction writers who had day jobs. One of the five went back to grad school and is now working in construction, which is amazing. She builds houses. And then the other four of us, two, um, have been writing novels. So it's different from how it started. But still, during the writing of this book, there was this group of people. And as much as we could, we met weekly. And the goal was every week at least two people would have something to read out loud, you know, a, a chapter of a novel or a draft of an essay or whatever. And having that sense of a deadline and that sense of accountability was helpful for me. I've been doing, um, I've been really stuck lately because I've been traveling so much and I can't concentrate and I want to be creating again, but I haven't had the time and that's making me feel nuts. So I've been doing, um, 1000 words of summer, which is, this great little hashtag that uh, my friend Jamie Attenberg came up with last summer as kind of a daily challenge. And she tweets every day about hashtag 1000 words of summer, she sends out a little tiny letter about it. And it's just a daily challenge to get 1000 words on the page every day, if you can for a certain number of days. I have not quite nailed it every day. But it, ha- having that Even just that little accountability, and there's nobody checking in on me. It's not like Jamie texts me and goes, did did you do your thousand words? But it made me, it has made me get back in front of the page. Like I did my thousand words on a plane one day last week when I could have been watching a movie on the plane, but I was like, i got to do my thousand words because I said I would. So manufacturing that sense of responsibility to a deadline or to a project helps me at least a little bit.
0: Yeah, I know Megan's been doing that as well, I think. Uh, Right, Megan? Sorry, Um, (laughs) I'm not trying to rat you out to Uh. the future. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's okay.
2: (laughs) Are you doing Um,
1: No, I did it the first four days, and then it was the weekend, and I had the kids by myself. My husband was out of town, so... I didn't. And then anyway, I did write 200 words again yesterday. So I'm getting back into it. But you're right. It does. It does help. um, It does help me too to have just this arbitrary I'm going to write, you know, until this day to this day and, you know, try to get there. Um, Mm -hmm. And even if it's even if you can't get all the way to 1000, I don't lately I have stopped feeling bad about that. Um, I used to feel really bad about not hitting it. And then I would, I would adjust my goal downwards. But I actually kind of like having that um, maybe it's a little bit too much to reach for out there. And yeah. it's helpful.
2: A friend of mine who, who is in my writing group, um, her name is Susanna, and she, she at various points in her creative life has given herself a goal of 15 minutes a day. And she tells herself, if I can do 15 minutes, that is something. So at least don't end the day lying in bed going, I completely neglected my novel again. And what she found is, and what she taught our writing group is you, you can make yourself do 15 minutes and sometimes you stay in that chair and you end up doing an hour, yay. Sometimes you don't, but at least you did your 15 minutes.
0: I have the same rule on exercise because like if I say I'm going to do 30 minutes, it sounds really, really hard. And I'm like, no, no, that's not going to happen. But 15 minutes of exercise a day is like very achievable. You can just do yoga. It doesn't mean it has to be really difficult, but like do something in your body. But I think 15 minutes is a good unit because it's so small. You can easily trick yourself and then you get started and, and usually you can do more. Yeah, I
2: need to do it with exercise. <laughs> I really need to do that. I just I just texted my my Pilates instructor, who I have not seen in three months, <laughs> and said, "Do you think you could have me back for a little Pilates rehab? Because I've my spine is just gone, <laughs> all my posture is gone."
0: Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, I have a question about like thinking about you on being on the road and everything else, and I'm just wondering. Uh, Again, two parts. One is, do you view like your book tour now as part of your day job, even though it's like the, the baby of your book, you know, it's sort of come out of your book. And then, so that's A and B, like, how is your concept of day job and writing and creativity? How has that sort of shifted over time for you?
2: It's, shift, it's, it's in the process of shifting right now. Like, I just had a conversation at the bookstore the other day with my boss where I was like, I wish I could clone myself. But I can't. And I, we've got to figure out what I want to stay part of the bookstore family. How do I do that? What can I continue to give? And what do you continue to need? How much time can I give that versus um, giving, writing a new book and accepting the limitations of writing a new book while also traveling for this book and also you know, just reality that my kids are big now. I only have two more years with, my, or less than two years with my oldest in the house. And I don't want to be gone for his last two years here. I don't want to miss his senior year. So um, it's changing. It is like in flux at this very moment. The travel for the book could have been done like, it could be over by now. If, if I had taken just the, the the budget that my publisher had for Book Tour, which, first of all, I'm so, so grateful that they had any budget at all for it because I fully know that that is not usually the case. Uh, but they had a budget that would kind of take me through a certain number of days and a certain number of stops. And they said, this is what we can do for you. Anything you want to do beyond that, we support you, we cheer for you, but we, we don't have the budget for it, so that's on you. Um, and I did opt to go beyond what their budget could do. And I, at the beginning, um, when I first got the advance for the book, I set aside a little pile of it. And I was like, this is money I cannot touch until book tour time. So I'm currently burning my way through that pile (laughs) and flying around and doing things. Um, and I view that as kind of an investment, not only in this book and helping this book find its readers through word of mouth, which I think is the way this book is going to find its, its readers. I'm not a celebrity. I, you know, this is not like the summer's hot novel. This is a book that friends are going to pass to each other when they read it and go, Oh, I feel seen. And I think you would feel seen. And to help that, I want to go speak to as many people as I can speak to book clubs, speak to, um, I've done some really fun corporate events where like a company has a book club and I come in and I speak to the employees. So I'm trying to do that. And I do still have some stops. Summer's kind of quiet, but this fall I have some, some additional travel and I'm really just kind of looking at it sort of like a day job, but sort of like this is, this is my investment in helping this book find its readers, which hopefully if this book finds its lots and lots of readers and I ever managed to write another one, those readers will be ready to accept the next book. So I'm I'm looking at this as a good kind of career investment. I hope, and I hope I'm right. <laughs> we'll see.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Go ahead, Megan. You're going to say something.
1: Nope. I was waiting to see if you had something. Before we... It's
0: like feelings time, so we
1: can move into that. <laughs> okay. I was going to say before we get into the feelings part. Um <laughs> I just have to say, so we have talked about your book on our podcast several times because Thank you. It really, when I say, and this is what I say whenever I tell anybody about it, that it is, it was exactly the right book at exactly the moment that I needed it. Um, And it's, it was, it was just really like, it's such a great book. So if anybody hasn't listened to it yet, it is a good summer read. I mean, this is coming from somebody who reads things like how to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell is what I'm reading right now. It's my poolside read. It is so good.
2: Um, I, I am like a crazy evangelist on the street for that book.
1: It's so I'm good. passing it out like candy. Yeah, it's a perfect Sorry. poolside read. But anyway, um, you know, I'm not I don't necessarily pick up like a beach read for a beach read, if that makes sense. But yeah. um no it was it was so great and i think that your book completely could be um that summer read for people if they want it and i forgot where i was going with this other than to say there was um your essay the letter to a type a person <laughs> i so i listened to the audiobook and i was listening to it on the way home from um work and I started crying and I got home and I made my oh. husband sit down and listen to it and I was just lying there on the couch like Pauline and he's looking at me like I'm crazy because <laughs> we're complete opposites and I was like this is what it's like to be in my head all the time and oh my gosh he he's just like he was horrified but also really he's like really that sounds really awful to be like it sounds really awful to be you and I was like yeah it kind of is so hi like oh. <laughs> um yeah we've been married 15 years so it's not even like right he shouldn't know this already. Right. right. Um, it's not a surprise. Yeah. But I actually did have a question that was related to that story. But now I'm looking through my notes <laughs> and trying to remember what it was because it was just like, huh.
2: Um, that, that was my, I mean, that was my goal to, as I got toward, as I worked through that pile of, write, of the essays I was writing, that became my goal. It wasn't my goal yeah. in the beginning, but as I started seeing what I was doing, going, "Oh, this is the these are the questions I'm returning to again and again." Even when I'm just telling like little light, funny stories, they're still kind of going back to these same questions. My goal became: other other people may feel seen when they read this and feel understood, and then the people who love them may understand them better. So, yeah. I'm I'm sorry you cried <laughs> in your car, but I but I was
1: okay. Happy, it was very really But I'm happy that it had that effect. Yeah, it was really good. And that and that is kind of where I guess I was going with this is um I mean essay personal essays are personal by nature. Um and memoir is personal by nature. But I think there's always kind of this, this tension inside, like how how much do you share? How personal does it get? And don't worry, I'm we're not gonna ask about your family and how they feel about it. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> so you. um but how do you navigate that? Like, this is not also a diary entry, and yeah. it's kind of what Brene Brown talks about—the difference between vulnerability. Vulnerable. I hope I don't need to ever record an audiobook <laughs> with that word in it. Vulnerability <laughs> and oversharing, um, and and kind of what did that process look like, especially the revision process? I'm curious. Yeah,
2: it's um, what I found was helpful in determining what I was writing about for this book but it but which I also this is also kind of a rule I apply to just essays that I publish individually is I am writing in service of readers and in service of the work itself and there is no um a funny story about someone I know or someone in my family or a funny like really personal story that has no point at all is fun for a cocktail party. It's a fun party. I mean, it's a fun story to tell out loud, like sitting around with friends, but it's not a story that belongs in a piece of writing that I'm publishing for other people to read. If I'm publishing it for other people to read, there needs to be, um, I mean, it sounds silly to say there needs to be a point, but there does, there needs to be a point. There needs to be something that I'm eliminating or talking about that other people also feel, um, and I feel this way too about like stand-up comedy. I've been watching a lot of comedy specials on the road just because they're you know they're short and funny and it's like that's what I can absorb right now. And I'm so impressed by stand-up comedians who write a good stand-up act that you, as you're listening to it, you think you're just feeling you're just hearing them tell like here's a funny thing that happened, but you realize they're they're illuminating these really human moments. That's the point of writing an essay. That's the point of writing a book. So anything that's just me going, listen to how funny I can be or listen to this really personal thing that happened or listen to something someone else did, that doesn't belong in the book. That's, that's what your diary is for or your, you know, whatever. That's, that's for talking to yourself in the mirror while you put your makeup on. That's not for a book.
1: Yeah, I really like that. Um, and, it you know, it applies to fiction and everything
0: so oh yeah it's yeah very cool and i also liked, i mean one of the things that comes across i think it was most i talked to megan about this right before we recorded but it was most obvious when you were talking kind of about there's a chapter and i don't remember i listened to it as well i think as megan which we loved hearing your voice as well but um uh So, but I can't – it's harder for me to, like, look things up later, Uh, so that's annoying. (laughs) You write a little bit about your mom, and it was, like, what, I have, like, lots of mom stuff, which we won't go into. But uh, but I really liked that you also had a – you had sort of two interpretations, and one is about, like, you know, like the – maybe various ways that things had turned you into the person you are and that perfectionism, but also equally like a generous look at also how you benefited from some of the exact same things. So you sort of turned it on its head at the end. Um, and I really thought it was a really unique and probably comes from that uh, mentality that you just explained, but you know, also having a more generous and kind of kinder look at all situations. So the book is obvious that you're turning that kindness on yourself, but also using that for how you
2: engage with other people as well. Thank you. One one. One of the things that I learned as I was going that I didn't know that this is what I was sitting down to write, but it turned out to be the writing process itself turned out to be an exercise in this was showing myself the same empathy I would show other people which I feel like most of us are not very good at doing. Even the most empathetic among us are so kind and expansive in our view of other people's motivations and our way of going, oh, you tried your best and I love you for it and, you know, good job. But we don't extend that same empathy to ourselves. And as I was writing through all the various um, moments and phases of life that I write about in this book, I was having to show myself that same empathy because otherwise that would be a really shallow book. It would just be like, here's me getting it wrong again and again and again and again the end. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I learned nothing from it, you learn nothing from it. You, you know, we're no one is changed by reading it. So that was something I sort of learned to do as I was going.
0: But did that okay, so tell me a little bit more about that? Because I actually think that's I mean, some people, it applies in a lot of different scenarios. A lot of people writing novels maybe have characters that remind them of themselves and they're a little harsher to them. So how do you, I guess, how do you layer in and, I mean, did you, Was your first draft? Like, here's all the stuff I did wrong. And then uh,
2: later you're like, all right, I'll be nicer or, yeah. Each essay I drafted, I drafted and polished in and of itself. So I would work through one essay, you know, with the terrible draft, the slightly less terrible draft that, you know, the 10 drafts in a row till I got it really, really good. Then there was a a higher level whole book edit, but I really did it kind of essay to essay. And very often what happens when I'm drafting these types of stories is first I just tell it like it's all a big joke. Like here's something funny. I didn't look, I'm such a perfectionist. Sometimes I play imaginary game shows in my closet. It's just so I can win things. It's nuts. And then I go through and I go, okay, well, what is the point of telling that story? And I try to dig a little deeper and connect whatever's funny about that story to whatever is human in me and in other people. And then I try, I don't. I don't necessarily want to end every essay with a lesson or a bow or like and that's what it means to be real or you know I don't want it to sound cheesy I don't want it to sound like you know the end of sex in the city where she's like I couldn't help but wonder I don't want to do that um, but I do I do want there to be some sort of journey from the beginning of es- the essay to the end where I start out going I wonder what this means that I do this or that this happens and I get to the end and go it could mean this and the nice thing the fun thing about doing a collection of essays is that they can build on each other so if I publish one essay in you know a newspaper or whatever you're just reading that you know those one thousand words from start to finish and it's got to have some kind of point within a thousand words but being able to layer them upon each other means they can kind of talk back and forth to each other and you can build those points and those questions and answers as you go and that was really fun that was fun to do
0: can you tell me this sounds like you're interviewing for a job i don't mean it to sound like that but <laughs> it's <also> a reflection <laughs> of my day job uh can you tell me something that you learned about i guess life when you like in the course of writing that book because i'm sure you also kind of thought you had lessons anyway that you wanted to share and then probably learned some new things through the writing process
2: Oh, gosh, yes, tons, tons of things. I mean, one one thing that I learned by the end of the book, and I feel like I read a lot of memoirs or a lot of stories where at the beginning, the person is like, I once was this way. Here are the ways that way was terrible, but now I have changed and I am better. I have fixed it. Here's the solution. I learned as I was writing through all of this that that was not the story I was telling. The story I was telling was was, here are some things about me that aren't all that great (laughs) and maybe here's where they came from, but it doesn't really matter where they came from. I don't know. Here's where I have ended up in life with those things and how I have found a way to move forward in a livable, somewhat happy way. But I haven't, you know, I've reinvented my life in a number of ways, but I haven't reinvented my whole mind and my whole soul. And I'm still a perfectionist. I am a more self-aware perfectionist. I am more in tune to my own patterns. Having written this book and looked back at a variety of different patterns playing out again and again, I now see those patterns in my daily life and go, Oh, I'm doing it again. (laughs) And that's and just that is helpful. Like I'm I'm living differently because I'm more aware of what my mind does. But there's I mean, there is nothing like writing a memoir to make you become aware of your own personal mental and emotional patterns, because it's like, you're fast forwarding your video. It's like, there I was at 10, there I was at 30, there I was at 40. Oh, look at me doing the same thing again and again.
1: Yeah. So that was another, um, that, and that's something that you've touched on in most interviews simply because that's what the book is about is (laughs) this idea of incremental change, um, which Mm -hmm. is really great. But from like a craft perspective, how are, how do you see that because that's something that we've also talked about is when, when you choose to write something and then you choose to stop writing it and you choose mm-hmm. to work on something else and yeah. maybe not do anything with it at all. Um, and this idea of accepting that the right decision for you right now doesn't mm-hmm. have to be the right decision for you for the next 65 years. Um, yeah. And that like you don't have to get up at seven o'clock every single day and write for 45 minutes and then do whatever you do, like, mm-hmm. because at work today, it doesn't have to keep working for you for like the next rest of your life. Um, yeah. which is really hard. Like personally, it's really hard for me to let go of cause I'm a very big like systems person. And if this works, yeah. then it should always work. Um, but also right. the idea of letting go of letting go of a past decision without blame. Um, yeah, it's hard. And saying like and e and, and so I mean from a personal personal perspective, but also from a writing <clears throat> a writing perspective and how is that something especially as you're I'm assuming that you are in the middle of writing something new and not mm-hmm. sitting around going, what Am I gonna write about next?
2: <laughs> um and like I'm most somewhere writers, between I'm somewhere between those two phases. Yeah. Um
1: is this really a good I, idea or yeah. <laughs> Right. How how does that apply that whole idea of like incremental reinvention and letting go and own, sometimes you have to stick to a decision whether you want to or okay. not um, and make yeah. it work for you. Um, how does that how does that apply to your process?
2: Practice helps. Practice quitting <laughs> things helps. It's so hard. Um, <laughs> it is so hard, and it, and very commonly I have found if someone has a little bit or a lot of perfectionist tendencies. They are also a completist. So they are someone who won't give up on a book until they've read to the last page. They won't turn off a movie until they see how it ends. They they will see every decision they've made all the way through to the end. And sometimes that comes with um, sort of a mental assumption that once I have made a commitment to something or a decision to do something, I am, I am stuck in it for life. And like you said, there are some things that that are that way, but most things are not. And, you, and whether that's a routine, you know, a writing process routine or um, where you live or what your job is or a project that you've started, if you practice quitting, it does get easier. If you practice letting go of a piece of writing and going, you know what? Never did make that work. Gonna put that in a drawer and move on freeing yourself from feeling like I can't let go of this until I finally get it right gives you some time back in your life. Cause we, I mean, we, you know, not to sound cheesy, but we only have so many years, we only have the time that we are given. And if we use our time to just, you know, hold on with the death grip to the things that we chose to do at a certain point in the past, then that's all we get. So you have to, you have to practice letting go in order to start new things and in order to get to try things a different way in the future.
1: Yeah, I like that. So far, I'm, I've only <laughs> been able to do that with books that I don't feel like reading anymore. <laughs> but that's so, a, but it's like, a good step. That's a step. Yeah, I know people who can do that. Can't. I,
2: I know people who are like, oh, I'm on page 200 and I hate this book. <laughs> what, are you, what are you?
1: Why? Like
2: And I used to be that, I did used to be that way. That is one thing that has changed about me in, in my decades of being an adult. I used to make myself finish everything. And I, yeah. I don't make myself finish books anymore if I don't like them.
1: I think it helps to have a humongous stack of things you're never, ever, ever going to make it through. And that way, you know, there's always something else. And, and maybe right. creative work works the same way. I'm, you know, you have like 7,000 ideas that you want to write and you can really only do one at a time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm a huge fan of quitting things.
0: This is like one of my main career advice as well. In my day job, I recently gave a somewhat controversial leadership talk where people were like, what's your advice for whatever? And I'm like, just if things are not working, like you should quit them. And that's like, not what we're supposed to say. It's like, no, you should always work our company and it's perfect here. And I'm like, if it's not like, finish your project, but like,
2: leave you know
0: yeah, basically. yeah. It's
2: okay. I did a talk I did a talk right at the very beginning of the book tour um, I did a corporate book club with a um, investment banking group in New York and it was a lot of young investment bankers and someone raised their hand and said what advice would you give your younger professional self and I said I would I would go back and tell myself if you hate a job quit and it was so, so funny because all these eyes lit up in the room and I thought oh <laughs> They're going to remember this as the time that lady came in and told them they could all quit and then they all quit the next
1: week.
0: Yeah, but I think it's refreshing because I've also been to,
2: like, this in my day job,
0: like, uh, talks by whatever, inspirational people who have not, like, let's call them circus clowns or something. Like, they do not have anything to do with consulting, which is what I work in. And uh, and then, like, they're like, you know, follow your passion. I'm like, "Uh, we're at a consulting firm. Like, what are you even (laughs) telling us? Right. You know, like, how is that applicable to our day to day life? Like, some people are following their passion, but really a lot of people are not. And you have to find your balance. Anyway, it's a tangent, but I appreciate that. Um, I think Megan's going to have to jump off in a second, like, in a couple minutes, right? Yeah, I
1: got five minutes.
0: Okay. Um, I had another question, but I don't remember it was again. Megan, do you have one?
1: Well, the, so the only thing that I, we don't normally, I mean, we talk a lot about books, but we don't normally do like a specific book recommendation. But I mean, that is kind of your, what you're really, like you're known for and you're really good at. <laughs> um, but what I'm curious about is one of the things Olivia and I have talked about is this idea that there are all these books that everyone's always talking about that you should read and you need to be reading and and, and feeling like you're trying to keep up with, again, the completest. Um mm-hmm have I read everything that's on everyone's best of lists and also how there's so much overlap and kind of insularity in those lists. Yeah. So what I'm curious about is some book recommendations that you have that are not being talked about, like books that are not
2: buzzy. Okay. Well, one, and then maybe this is buzzy. It wasn't buzzy when I, latched onto it, but maybe it is now, is the one you and I already talked about, The Art of Doing Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. I want every human being to read it. It's so it's such an important read that makes you think about where we spend our attention and how our attention has been hijacked, really, by a variety of of devices and platforms and things in the world that were created by people for commercial reasons, and that's, it's changing the way our brains work, and she sort of challenges us to rethink where we spend our attention, and in changing where we spend our attention, change our lives and the lives of everyone around us, so I love that one, that's my, that's my current nonfiction, like, everyone must read it book. Um, there's a novel coming out, um, I don't know when this will air, it's a July novel, and this is another one I want everyone to read, and it's really unusual. So just go into it, go into it without expectations and and say, who knows how I will feel about this? It's called The Need by Helen Phillips. It has a beautiful cover, has a vine on it. Um, And it is, for anyone who has read my book and knows the essay called The Window, where I write about what it really feels like to have a child and how it sort of splits your concept of time in a way that nothing else does. And suddenly you're aware of this other dimension where, you know, where did this baby come from? Where did this soul come from? And where do we go when we leave this earth? Are we back with those other souls? And if this being can exist in front of me who was not here before, like what other beings might exist? Like what, what about the other versions of me I never was? Did they exist on some plane? This novel, The Need by Helen Phillips, takes that whole, all those questions and concepts and tells an actual story. Like it's an actual story in which all those things unfold. And I'm being vague about it because I don't want to give it away, but you start, you start this novel thinking that what you're witnessing is a home invasion. That this woman is home alone with her two little children and, and someone has broken into her house. And from there things happen and it gets weird and it gets kind of meta and it's, really an unusual book but it's also such an important book and I I want everyone to read it I feel like it reflects so many things in our minds and so so many things that that don't match up with the real world but are very real in our heads I love it
0: it does sound amazing and I love that description of things that don't match the real world but are real
2: in our heads so yeah (laughs) that's there's so many little private jokes and private weird things that when you say them out loud to someone else, you realize other people <laughs> think that too. And that book was oh, this I love way that for me. Really.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, I wish we could talk longer. So <laughs> well, thank Perfect. you for having me. But yeah, this yes. has been really delightful.
2: Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I loved it. This is great. I'm such a I'm a huge fan of, of what you two do. So thank you for oh, including yes. me.
1: Likewise. In. Thank, thank you so very much. much. Thanks thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. You and that's it for this week you can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on instagram at marginallypodcast our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com and if you haven't already please subscribe to our newsletter the sign up form is on our website and if you enjoy the show please consider rating it and leaving a
0: review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend this will help us to grow our community thanks
1: for listening and happy writing Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues, we're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Marginally, you might also enjoy one of our favorite podcasts, Hashtag Am Writing with Jess and KJ. Every episode is full of great information and encouragement. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts or find the link in our show notes.